بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته وتعلق بجانبه إلى يوم الدين وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah ala salama, alhamdulillah we're back after two weeks off from this course and we started, we did three sessions so far and this is the fourth session covering the meanings, some of the meanings of the beautiful 99 names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in our first session we looked at a general introduction to the topic of learning about the 99 names, what they are, where they're derived, and different aspects of how we study to have a better understanding of the meanings of these names of Allah Ta'ala. In our second class, what name did we cover? The, Allah. Allah, the, the, the divine name Allah, and after the name Allah we covered Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. So we're covering these divine names according to a particular arrangement, a particular tartib. We have the tartib found in the hadith in Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah and others, which mentions them in a certain order, but the first of those names, the Tartib is also mentioned in a chapter of the Qur'an. Who knows what chapter in, of the Qur'an mentions this Tartib? Surat Al-Hashar. Surat Al-Hashar mentions these divine names in a particular order. So in those verses in Surat Al-Hashar, Allah mentions His divine name Allah first. Then He mentions Ar-Rahman. Ar-Rahim, and after that, what does he mention? Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, Al-Salam, Al-Mu'min, Al-Muhaymin, Al-Aziz, Al-Jabbar, Al-Mutakabbir. So that's the tartib we're going to be following for the next few weeks. Once we get past those names, we continue with the tartib, the arrangement found in the hadith. So that means having covered the, some of the meanings of the divine name Allah and some of the meanings of Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, today we cover Al-Malik and Al-Quddus. Now we could just cover one, but because the two of them are paired in this chapter and we want to keep a certain flow and order to the class, we're going to go through two of them today inshaAllah. So we start with the divine name Al-Malik. Now when you read Al-Fatiha, most of you anyway, you read Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, followed by Maliki Yawmiddin. We are learning the name Al-Malik. But we're going to learn about Malik as well and the difference between the two, as you'll see, inshaAllah ta'ala. So Al-Malik as one of the names of Allah Ta'ala, if we translate it into English, it means the sovereign or the king. And that's what we'll go with today. Al-Malik as the king. It's really helpful when we learn these names to look at the root letters. And you'll see this as we go through these names, a lot of this involves the Arabic language. The meanings of the root letters, the words that are derived from those root letters, that give us deeper understanding of the meanings of these names. So you see in Arabic you have Malik, which means king or sovereign. You have Malik, which means owner or master. They're very similar in meaning. But then you have other words like Malik, Malik with a Ya. And Malik also means sovereign or king. And this is mentioned in Surah Al-Qamar, where Allah Ta'ala mentions Malikin Muqtadir. 
So this means sovereign or king as well. You find in the Arabic language other words that come from this root of meme, lamb, calf. You have malaki. Malaki is coming from malak, but it has the ya added to the end. And this is for emphasis of one's dominion. If you translate malaki in English, it means royal, right? If you have a king in some Arab land, and he has a castle, you would call that Al-Qasr Al-Malaki, the royal castle. So that means royal. As a noun, you have another word, Mulk. And Mulk, I want to pair this with another word, Malakut. How many of you have heard that word, Malakut? I think that's in Urdu as well. No? Okay. That was my guess, but I was wrong. Uh, malakut, mulk and malakut often go together. So you have du'as of the Prophet wasallam, where he mentions the mulk and the malakut together. And when they're together, mulk means the dominion, usually the physical dominion, the world, sovereignty over the world or the universe. And when you have that word mulk, Paired with malakut, malakut refers to dominion over the unseen worlds. So you can take the two names or words and say mulk refers to dominion over the physical and malakut refers to dominion over the unseen. The, the ghaib and the shahada, the seen and the unseen. So that's dominion over both realms. And then lastly, you have a word that also comes from these root letters, a word we all know, mala'ika. Mala'ika, there are some who say that mala'ika comes from the word uluka, which means risala, as a message, bearers of a message. But there's others who say that mala'ika comes from mulk, dominion or sovereignty, because it said that they are given control of some functions in the unseen realm. Angels in charge of driving the clouds. Angels in charge over the seas. Angels in charge of delivering the raindrops to their particular location decreed by Allah Ta'ala. Angels in charge of writing down what we say and do. So they have a certain kind of dominion vested in them, some authority conferred upon them by Allah Ta'ala and so it said malaika because they have some they have some tasrif in those matters that Allah gives them uh, a job in, so to speak. So these are all different words we have that come from these three letters of meme, lamb, kaf. And this gives you a better understanding of medic uh, from a linguistic standpoint. Now when we come to the meanings of al-medic as a divine name, we have the words of the great Imam As-Sanusi rahimahullah, who says very succinctly that the one who possesses absolute sovereignty, perfect power, total independence, and free disposal, tasarruf, the one whose command and prohibition are binding and whose promises and threats are not met with opposition or hindrance. That's a very beautiful way of explaining the meaning of this name. The one who has absolute power, absolute dominion, absolute control, the one whose commands and prohibitions are absolutely binding, and whose promises and threats cannot be countered or opposed or prevented or thwarted in any way whatsoever. That's the true king. We have also the words of Imam al-Ghazali who mentions in his work on the 99 names that the king, al-Malik, is the one who in his essence and attributes has no need of any existing thing while every existing thing needs him. And this coincidentally is one of the ways in which Imam al-Sanusi explains the meaning of la ilaha illallah. 
that there is no one, no being that is mustaghnin an ma siwahu, who is completely independent of everything else, but unto whom everything else is dependent except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the meaning of medic as well. The absolutely independent, the one who is free of all needs and the one unto whom everything else owes its existence and has need for. So now we come to the issue of the difference between al-medic and al-malik. Now most of you, most of us, we are used to reciting the Qur'an according to the riwayah of Hafs an Asim. This is the particular canonical reading of the Qur'an in which in Surah Al-Fatiha we recite it as Maliki Yawmiddin. And that is the recitation of Asim, of Kisai, of Ya'qub and Khalaf. But in the other canonical readings of the Qur'an, we have Maliki Yawmiddin. And that is the recitation of Hamza, Abu Ja'far, Ibn Amir, Abu Amr, Ibn Kathir, and Nafir. So you have these different canonical readings of the Qur'an where one is Maliki and the other one is Maliki Yawmiddin. A lot of people who are not familiar with the Qira'at might hear one and think that the reciter has made a mistake and they haven't made a mistake. They're reciting according to one of the mass transmitted mutawatir qira'at given transmitted by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we affirm that, but what does that mean in practical terms? What's the difference between the two? And the difference is quite subtle. You say that Malik with the alif means the king, master, owner, possessor, sahibu shay, right? The one who has control and sovereignty. Whereas Malik is sovereign or king. There's a very subtle difference. One speaks of ownership, one speaks of sovereignty. What's the difference between the two? It's very, very subtle. They both have essentially the same meaning at the core. There's just a slight linguistic variation between the two. Now, the question that comes up, if you reflect on Surah Al-Fatiha, is that Allah Ta'ala is saying, Maliki Yawmiddin and Maliki Yawmiddin, the master or the sovereign of the day of judgment. What this means is that Allah Ta'ala has absolute tasarruf, absolute free disposal over his servants and he does with them whatever he wills and there's no one who can refuse what he has preordained. There's no one who can withhold whatever he has given. And that is actually in a dua that we receive from the Prophet ﷺ. That meaning is in a dua that we are encouraged to say after the five daily prayers. And one of the, one of the hadith mentions that you say, uh, La ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika la, lahu al-mulku wa lahu al-hamdu, wa huwa ala kulli shay'in qadir. And then the next part is, does anyone know this dua? Allahumma la mani'a lima a'atayt wa la mu'atiya lima mana'at wa la yanfa'u dhal jaddi minkan jadd. So the part we're looking at is where he says, sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam, O Allah, there is no one to prevent or to withhold what you have given. And there is no one to give what you have withheld. That is the meaning of al-medic. So, the question here is, Allah is Maliki Yawmiddin, of course, but isn't He the King and Sovereign and Absolute Owner in this life as well? Why does He say Maliki Yawmiddin and not Maliki Dunya wa Yawmiddin, the Master of this life and the Master of the next? Why does He only mention it in reference to the hereafter, the Day of Judgment? This is an important question. Because we know that Allah's sovereignty extends to both realms, this life and the next, and to all beings. And the ulama, they give different answers, but the clearest one is that in this world, 
there are people who don't believe this. In this world, there are people who don't actually believe that Allah has absolute control over everything. But on the Day of Judgment, that sovereignty and an absolute ownership of everything will manifest in a way that no one can deny, not even the worst of deniers in this life. It will be apparent to them as it is apparent to the believers in this world who affirm it for Allah. And this is why in the Qur'an elsewhere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لِمَنِ الْمُلْكُ الْيَوْمِ To whom does the mulk belong today? The dominion. This is the rhetorical question he asks. And then Allah answers it. لِلَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ الْقَهَارِ To Allah, the one and the irresistible. So it's a rhetorical question, but it's established on the day of judgment where not even the deniers in this life can pretend that it's not real. So that's why Allah emphasizes it in, re- in reference to the day of judgment. As for believers, Alhamdulillah, we affirm that Allah is Maliki Yawmuddin and Maliki Ad-Dunya wa Maliki Yawmuddin wa Maliki Ad-Dunya wal-Akhira wa kulli shay, everything in existence. Now looking deeper into this beautiful name of Allah, the King, the Sovereign, we're now opening up into some other areas of discussion that are going to come up in some detail in the next few classes when we try to categorize some of these divine names as names of beauty or names of rigor, Jalal, Jamal and Jalal, uh, names that speak about the essence, names that speak about the divine actions. We're going to look at this categorization in the near future, inshallah. But we start with looking at the words of the great Imam and Mufassir, Imam Al-Qurtubi, who mentions that Al-Malik, the king, is a name describing the divine essence, Al-Zatul Aliyah. And it is a name describing the divine actions as well. So it's describing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the divine essence. It's also a name describing his actions. So he says for the first, the divine essence, it describes his perfection in his essence and attributes. And his absolute istighna, his absolute independence. So medic in this sense means the one who has no needs, who is absolutely independent and from whom everything in existence derives whatever it receives. So this is the name referring to the essence, the one who has no needs. But it's also a name that describes actions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says for that, it describes his sovereignty over the created world. His control, which is an action, over the created world and his origination of the created world and his absolute control of it. So that's the divine action aspect. So this name is a name describing the essence as well as his actions. Shaykh Ahmad Zarruq, rahimahullah, whom we said before we'll be referencing quite a lot in this course, he mentions in his commentary on the 99 names, that Allah Ta'ala is a sovereign unlike others. Because when other sovereigns spend, they diminish their kingdom. But when Allah creates, the more Allah creates, the larger the kingdom becomes. So you imagine a king in this world. All kings in this world are metaphorical, majazan. It's metaphorical. And when you have a king in this life, you assume they have a lot of money. They have a lot of power, and they spend their money. But they spend their money, and once they spend it, it's gone. They have to have some way of getting some kind of revenue, whether it's through war, taxation, theft, which is the same. Uh, they have to find ways of generating revenue once they spent that money. But when Allah Ta'ala creates more and more and more at every instance, that doesn't diminish anything. It actually expands the mulk itself. So the mulk of Allah, the dominion of Allah, the created world is constantly increasing. 
through the creative act of Allah Ta'ala. And that doesn't diminish him at all. Whereas any other king, metaphorical king in this world, when he spends his money, is gone. It diminishes what he has in his reserves. And he has to give more. Now, as I was preparing for this class, I was thinking, you know, what do we, what do we know about kings, worldly kings? There's a rich history, a lot of mythology. There's a certain symbolism of the king as, as an archetype. And kings have played different roles across history in different regions. So I was wondering, well, what exactly is the role of a king? What is the king expected to do? Is he just there to sit on a throne and eat grapes? There's something more. And across history and across cultures, there were certain understandings about the role of a king. It was understood across cultures that a king has some level of sovereignty and ownership. It was understood that the king, as the ultimate uh, temporal sovereign of a land, he does whatever he wants with the things that he owns. No one can tell him you can't do this with the thing that he owns. The kings across history were known to favor his, their subjects and look after the needs of their subjects. They didn't always do that properly. They often fell short. But that was an expectation that they would favor some more than others, but they would otherwise look after their kingdom. Likewise, kings uh, in this world were there to establish order in their kingdom and to determine the laws that govern their kingdom. And if the person is the rightful king, it was expected that you pledge loyalty and fealty to that king. You owe that king your loyalty being a subject of the king in his kingdom. And kings across cultures and across time had a hierarchy. They had a hierarchy of subjects, some closer to the king, some further away, but all of them were subjects of the king. So that's the general way we look at kings across history and civilizations. But you see that those meanings all apply to al-Medik as the divine, the king, the ultimate king. Because he is owed a loyalty and allegiance and he owns everything. And he has the hierarchy of those who are close and those who are closer. There's a hierarchy among creation. But in reality, there's only one king. As we said before, the worldly kings are only kings metaphorically. They're not real kings. They're kings according to this level of existence in the human realm. But the real king is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Malik al-Haqq. And that is because everything in existence, including the kings of this world, are in intrinsic need of him while he needs nothing. Kings are needy just like everyone else. Kings live and die just like everyone else. Kings can do right and wrong just like everyone else except those whom Allah protects. Likewise, Allah is the true king because everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. There's a famous story mentioned in Arisat al-Qushayriya and other collections from Ibrahim ibn Adham, one of the famous uh, pious individuals from our early history. And a person came to him complaining that he was having a hard time giving up certain sinful habits. And he gave him uh, a series of advice and one of the things he said is, if you're going to disobey Allah, just make sure you do it in a place that doesn't belong to him. The person intelligently understood, well, there's nowhere I can go, because anywhere I go is created by him, and he owns it. So I can't actually escape his kingdom to do those sinful things, right? So he owns everything. And when he wills something, he says, kun fayakun. So absolute independence, absolute richness, freedom from need, and absolute ownership over everything. That is al-Medik 
the true king, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now we come to that part that we spoke about a few times before. We said that as we cover each name, we look at ta'alluq, takhalluq, and tahakkuq, these three levels. How one can connect devotionally to that divine name, how one can inculcate the character from the meaning of that name, and how one attains realization experientially of that divine name. So on the lowest level, which is the level of ta'alluq, of connection, connecting devotionally, it is said that you should connect with the name al-Madik in accordance with its meaning by the mamluk connecting with al-Madik. Because we're all mamluk, right? That's one of the words for servant. We know the, we know the word abd. But another word for servant or slave is mamluk, which it means you're literally owned. We're all owned because we are the object of that ownership. We are owned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that's the reality. So you connect with this name by fulfilling the commands as an abd, as a mamluk, by abstaining from the prohibitions as an abd, a mamluk. And by surrendering to divine power as a mamluk, by forgetting other than him, and by focusing on him, and by drawing strength from him as the true king. So that connection aspect is just realizing who we are as abd. Uh, it is said that everything in existence is relative. Everything in existence is relative. It doesn't have to be here. And the only absolute is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the only possible relationship the relative can have to the absolute is submission. Being abd. There's no other possible meaningful relationship one can have to the absolute except submission. And that is what we call, what do we call that? Islam. Islam is the only possible relationship the relative can have towards the absolute. That's what it is. As far as connection goes, there's a story uh, mentioned in Lata'iful uh, Minan by Ibn Ata'illah, Rahimahullah. He mentions this story. It says that uh, a prince was once out traveling. You know, so he comes from a place of privilege and power. He's used to getting his way. And he comes across a poor man. And wanting to show his benevolence, he says to the poor man, Ask me for what you need. I will confer my favor on you. And the poor man said to him, Is that the way you speak to me when I have two servants? who are your masters. This is not the way you speak to a prince if you want to keep your head, by the way. The poor man knew that, and the prince knew that. This was a very threatening kind of remark. And so the prince took offense. How dare you? He became enraged and said, Who are these two uh, servants that are my masters? Who are these two servants that you say are your servants? But they are my masters. How dare you? And this poor person said, Greed and desire. Ashur wa tama'a. Greed and desire. I've conquered them. Yet they have conquered you. So I rule over them while they rule over you. So this prince, we can say he's the son of the king. He's royalty. But according to the poor man, he has two servants that are actually masters over him because he's still ruled by his desires. So even if he's a king in the world, he's still ruled over by his lower passions. So connecting with the name Al-Madik means that you have to be kingly somewhat in ruling over those passions and getting control of them, uh, subordinating them to the guidance of Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it's really easy to say that, isn't it? 
Get control of your nefs. It's the easiest thing to say. Now we can go home and try it and see how difficult it is. That's the life's work, isn't it? But that asserting authority over it is kind of a way of connecting with this name Al-Madik. Because Allah has ordered us to overpower them, but he's the true king. So that's connection. Cultivation is very similar. And again, it is taking the meaning of Al-Madik and cultivating that meaning as a quality of character. And Ibn Ajiba and as well as Sheikh Ahmad Zarruq, they say that you should cultivate this name in your character by taking possession, yamlik, antamlik anta, by taking possession of your ego and desires. What I just said. This is achieved, they say, by liberating the self from bondage to cravings and by adorning it with wara or scrupulousness. Scrupulousness basically means you avoid things that are not overtly haram, but you're afraid they might take you to the haram. And that's a big topic. And wara, it really deserves its own class to explain what it is and what its parameters are. But the idea is you avoid the haram, the clear-cut haram first, then you try to avoid the makru. And if you can do that, it's tough. But if you can do that, then you have wara. And your wara is you avoid something that's not clearly haram, but you fear it may lead to it or it may be tainted with it. And that's a personal thing. That's not something you can put on others and impose on them. It's a decision you have to make of being extra cautious. But you see, wara is tricky too. This is a bit of a tangent. Uh, wara is tricky because sometimes the nefs gets involved. Right? Especially a person who they, they kind of see themselves as trying to be the practicing Muslim. It's easy to get tricked by shaitan in the nafs in the, through the door of wara. Why is this? Because sometimes it gives a person this heroic self-image. You know, I am this really serious Muslim. I avoid that because it's doubtful. Not clearly haram, but I avoid it because you never know. But here's the trick. A lot of times when the wara is from the nafs, it's, it's very uh, selective. Uh, one of the ulama of Andalus, they said, Al-wara fi shay, duna shay, la yu'awal alayhi. To be selective in what you have uh, scruples about, where you have wara in one thing but not in something else, you can't rely on that as a marker of piety. This is the person who is very cautious about their meat, but they're not cautious about their tongue. Or they're cautious about their, uh, their tongue, but they're not cautious about how they spend their money and how they earn their money. It doesn't work that way. Wara is, you're either all in or you're not, right? But that is the idea, that you liberate the ego by freeing it from bondage to haram cravings, then disliked cravings, and then by adorning it with some wara. But that is a process. It's also said, as Sheikh Ahmed Zarruq and uh, Ahmed ibn Ajiba say, it's also said that whoever knows Allah as the only sovereign, the only medic, will refuse to humiliate himself before a created being since knowledge of his king necessitates detachment from others and a complete turning to him. And it requires that he take pride in Allah over all else and suffice with his sovereignty and authority. So this is what we call Izzatun Nafs. So Izzatun Nafs is not the haram pride. It is the self-dignity of knowing that you are mamluk and abd to the owner of everything. So why would I, as the abd, to the owner of everything, humiliate myself in front of another mamluk that doesn't possess anything independently, that's also just as much in need as I am? So that is a level of realization uh, that comes 
when a person knows Allah as a medic, this uh, honor and dignity of the soul. As far as realization is concerned, which is the highest of these three, tahakkuk, they say that you attain realization of the name al-Malik by being his khalifa in his kingdom. By being his khalifa in his kingdom. Now, the word khalifa has a couple of different usages. We know the, mean, the word khalifa as one who... Uh, is looking after something in the absence of someone else. So in the dua we talked about today at Jumu'ah, the dua of travel, we say, Allahumma anta sahibu fi'l-safar wal-khalifatu fi'l-ahli. You are the companion in the journey, and you are the khalifa, you're the one who looks after the family in my absence. So khalifa has that meaning. Khalifa also has the meaning of the temporal authority over the Muslim Ummah and they're called a Khalifa because they are ruling in lieu of the ruling of the Prophet But Allah Ta'ala also uses the word Khalifa in a broader sense. Who knows where it is first mentioned in that sense? In Surah Al-Baqarah, what does Allah say? Who knows the verse? Inni Ja'ilun fil ardi khalifa. I am placing a khalifa on the earth. What that means is not that Allah is absent, but one has been deputized, has been given this authority representing in acting according to the, the commands of Allah as the caretaker, as the steward, as the vice regent in the earth. And Allah Ta'ala mentions in the same chapter that He gives His mulk to whom He, whom he wills. Wallahu wasi'un alim. And Allah is vast and all-knowing. So Allah gives that kingdom. So what that means is being a proper khalifa. A khalifa of Allah by being a very upstanding representative of what it means to be a human being. An adami. An Adami who has knowledge of the divine names, who has knowledge of the things in the world, meaning not just the dictionary knowledge, but you know what they signify and what they're for and how they are to be used, and you make sure that in your life things are done properly. That's a big topic, but that's the idea. That the one is not, they're not an absolute king, but they are a khalifa of that king. That's what it would mean. Wallahu a'lam. So this is what we say regarding the name Al-Malik. And each time we talk about the divine names, we say some of the meanings. Because there's no way we could ever speak exhaustively about all of the meanings uh, and the, the manifestations of these divine names. This is just a drop in the ocean of a limitless knowledge, some of which we gleaned from the Qur'an, some of which we glean from the Sunnah, and both of which we understand through the prism of the Arabic language. So this is what we would say about the name Al-Madik. So before we move on, are there any questions? Because the next name we'll cover if there's no questions. Any questions about Al-Madik? Malakut is also in the Quran, yes. Uh, Allah Ta'ala mentions it in the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam that he was shown the malakut of the heavens and the earth. So this means the sovereign realm of Allah in the heavens and the earth. Yes. So sometimes, and this is one of the, the aspects of Arabic, you have certain words that uh, when, when they're paired together, they have distinct meanings. But when they are separate from each other, they both tend to mean the same thing. Uh, an example of that is uh, al-bir wa taqwa. So al-bir is goodness. Taqwa is piety. When they're separate from each other, when the word bir is mentioned by itself, is goodness and God-fearingness, it encompasses the meaning of taqwa. But when you have bir and taqwa paired together, 
they both have their own unique meaning, different from the other, in which bir would be a righteous actions, and taqwa would be that state of the heart of uh, avoiding the haram and seeking Allah's pleasure and avoiding his wrath. So mulk and malakut is like this too. When the two are separate, they tend to have the same meaning. Right? Mulk and malakut, the dominion. Right? But when they're together, we say that the difference is that mulk would be physical, the seen, alam, alam al-shahada, and malakut would be alam al-ghayb, the unseen realm. But when they're separate, uh, Allah Ta'ala mentions that in the story of Ibrahim, that he had shown him the malakut of the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth are seen. That would be mulk as well. But it's, it's not mentioned together with mulk, so it encompasses both. Okay, so we go to the name Al-Quddus, insha'Allah. Uh, this won't be as long as the discussion on Al-Madik. But a lot of what we're going to say regarding this next name will apply to many of the names that we'll be covering in the near future because this is known as a name of transcendence, a name of Tanzi. And I'll explain what that means soon, insha'Allah. So the name Al-Quddus. Are there any words that come from that same root that you can think of? Al-Quds. That's everyone's first guess. Guess what's in the next slide? Right? So people think of Quds. Also, you have the word Taqdis. So Quds means purity and hallowedness. Taqdis means the act of sanctifying something. And Al-Ardul Muqaddasa, Muqaddasa, coming from the word Quds, refers to the sanctified land of Jerusalem. So all of these come from Qaf, Dal, and Sin. So Quds, Qaddasa, Yuqaddisu, Taqdisa, Fahuwa Muqaddis, Wadaka Muqaddas, as it goes in the books of Sarf. So the name Al-Quddus comes from this word Quds. And Quds means Tahara, Nazaha, purity, hallowedness, uh, these kinds of meanings. According to Sheikh Ahmad Zarruq, in his commentary, with respect to Allah Ta'ala, the name Al-Quddus means the one who is sanctified, and transcendent beyond flaws and deficiencies and who deserves being described with every attribute of perfection. So there is no attribute of perfection that befits God except that He always had it. There's no attribute of perfection that He didn't have that He came to acquire later on. It doesn't work like that. Because to lack a perfection implies naqs. It implies imperfection, incompletion, until that additional perfection was acquired. So Allah Ta'ala does not develop perfections by gaining things. He already has all perfections. So He is described with every attribute of perfection. He is described as being transcendent, meaning beyond. All flaws and deficiencies. Munazzah. He is transcendent beyond all naqais and uyub, as we say in Arabic. Now, we, we need to explain what that means in a little more detail. Now, the word in English, transcendence, means to go beyond. And this means beyond imperfections. That is what it means when we say, Subhanallah. Now, most translations, how, how do they render subhanallah in English? How do you hear it? Glory, right? Uh, so, alhamdulillah is all praises. And subhanallah, usually they translate it as glory be to Allah. It's not really a, a, a great translation because this meaning of subhanallah, it's, it's tanzih is transcendent. If you were to translate subhanallah accurately, it you would say, I declare Allah 
transcendent and beyond all imperfections and deficiencies. That's what it means. And that means that Allah Ta'ala is free of all imperfections and transcendent beyond the qualities of contingent beings, meaning things that are created. He is without beginning, without end, without likeness to his creation in his essence, attributes, or actions. He has, he's without dependence, he's without needs, without part, a partner in his essence, attributes, or actions. So that is what it means when we say, subhanAllah, beyond all imperfections. So that is the meaning of Al-Quddus as well. There's a really beautiful passage from uh, Al-Qadi, Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, al-Ma'afiri. He mentions explaining this taqdis or this sanctification of Allah. He says that Allah's sanctification beyond imperfection is in ten things. And this is not hasar, by the way. It's not limitation. It's just he's looking broadly at the various ways in which Allah is transcendent and beyond imperfections. So he says he's transcendent beyond partners, having partners, equals, opposites, offspring, illusions, limitations. He is beyond envisagement, meaning he's beyond being contained in the imaginations. La tudrikuhu al-awham. Right? The imaginations cannot encompass him or grasp him. He is beyond having need for creation or requiring sanctification for another. Meaning, if no one on the earth ever said, Subhanallah, he's still, he's still Quddus. Right? And he's beyond imperfection or deficiency in his essence, attributes, or actions. It's fairly clear. But as you'll see in the coming classes, there are other names that are very similar in meaning that point to Allah's perfection and His transcendence beyond imperfection and flaws. Like the name As-Salam that will be coming to soon. So whatever we say about uh, Al-Quddus, we also say about As-Salam with obviously a linguistic difference. So because of that, because we're, we're coming back to those meanings again and again, we'll suffice with that. And we'll be revisiting those meanings quite soon. Now coming to the name Al-Quddus and how one may have connection, cultivation, and realization, the imams, they say that you should connect with the name Al-Quddus by seeking divine protection. From the, from the impurity of violating his prohibitions, both the inward and the outward thereof, and by seeking to secure the heart from mukhalafat, offenses. So how does that connect with the meaning? Remember what we said in the beginning, that uh, quds means sanctification or purity. So quds means tahara as well, purity. So you connect devotionally to the name Al-Quddus by seeking from him tahara, purity in yourself. And what is it that defiles us? What is it that keeps us from being tahir? Sins, mukhalifat, things like that. So you seek protection from the impurity of violating his prohibitions in your heart and in your limbs and in your tongue. So you're turning to Allah, Ya Quddus, sanctify me, purify me from those things. That's how you turn to the name devotionally in dua. And that's the meaning of ta'alluq. As far as cultivation is concerned, it's almost the same. They say you cultivate the meaning of the name in your character by purifying your limbs from the stains of sinfulness and offenses. And you purify yourself from following your caprice. You purify your wealth from the forbidden and the doubtful. You purify your heart from the effects of ghafla, heedlessness. You purify your soul 
from excess creature comforts and habits, bad habits, and you purify your innermost self, your ruh, from furtive glances and taking notice of others besides Allah. So that last one is basically talking about purifying yourself from obsessing and being distracted away from your purpose, being distracted from your Lord and your Creator by obsessively focusing and noticing everything else but Him. That's what it means. So you see in this cultivation slide a very tall order. You see a life's work. And I would, I would argue that when we get to all of these sections of cultivation, connection, realization, you are looking at a program that entails a life's work. You know, no one can say, yeah, I've gone through all of these levels of cultivation, connection, realization for all of the 99 names. I'm done. What's next? That, that doesn't happen. It's an ongoing affair. And lastly, the scholars say that you attain tahakkuk, realization of the name Al-Quddus by purifying the soul until the spirit, the ruh, dominates over the physical body. Is that even possible? Absolutely. You ever notice that people who are blind have usually have a very strong sense of hearing? I mean, their, their senses compensate for the lack of eyesight. The sense of hearing compensates for the lack of eyesight. You'll see people who are paralyzed or unable to walk in a wheelchair. You know, as they use that wheelchair for a long time, what happens? They get very strong arms because they're wheeling it around so often. So when you lose one faculty or one faculty is diminished, there's another faculty that compensates for it. So you have the sense of sight, the sense of hearing, the sense of smell. You have all these physical senses, al-hawas al-khams, the physical senses of the body. If you limit those senses by uh, keeping the haram from them, and then the makru, and then the, neat, the, the useless things, and you occupy the ruh with dhikr of Allah and ibadah and muraqaba, all these virtues, what happens is you are actually developing the ruh and it begins to compensate for you turning the other senses away from the haram and the makruh. And when that happens, the ruh becomes stronger. It becomes... Uh, more powerful and more sensitive. And this is why people like that tend to have very vivid dreams. They tend to have premonitions of things that might happen in the future, and they tend to happen in the future, what we call kashful ilham. And these are things that happen because, well, they've purified their souls. They've strengthened the ruh, making it stronger by limiting the senses from the haram. Right? And that's what he's getting at. By purifying the soul until the spirit dominates over the physical body. And how is that done? They say it is by affirming Allah's perfections. By affirming the purity of Allah's words and His judgments. That whatever He judges as halal is good. Whatever He judges as haram is bad. His judgment is just. And whatever he does in creation, his hukum kauni, whatever he does is also wise, right? It's all pure. They affirm the purity of his justice. La yadlimu rabbuka ahada, your Lord wrongs no one. They avoid descriptions that attribute any defective qualities or imperfections to Allah. They don't ascribe any imperfections to him. And they cleanse their faith, this tahara, right? From, by removing doubts, misgivings, and misconceptions. They don't allow these things to linger or entertain them. They educate themselves. They gain knowledge of their deen, so those things are removed. 
and they sanctify their own soul by cleansing it of aghrad, of ulterior motives, showing off and seeking reputation, and also from bad, harmful habits. That's really the process of Islam, this purification of the soul. And when a person does that, they attain realization that the real muzakki is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that it, were it not for the fadl of Allah and His, His blessing and grace, مَا زَكَى مِنْكُمْ أَحَدٌ None of you would be pure. وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهُ يُزَكِّ مَنْ Allah purifies whomever He wills. And how do you attain that purity? You have to take it from the muzakki that He sent to us, sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is described as that muzakki as well by giving us the means of purification. So you see that within connection, cultivation, realization, it's all about the process of trying to get tahara, not just the physical one of removing impurities and making wudu, but the inward purity as well. As Ibn Farid says, uh, you know, to wash bima'l ghayb, you know, the water of the unseen, meaning the inner purity as well. So that's what we say about the name Al-Quddus. And as I mentioned earlier, these meanings of transcendence, of Allah being beyond imperfections, these meanings will come up time and time again as we cover some of those names, which are names pointing to that transcendence, such as the name As-Salam, and other names that we'll get to in the near future, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. And so with that, inshallah, we will conclude. وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. Any questions about the name Al-Quddus? Yes. So, Burhun Quddus. Right. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. It's always beautiful when you connect these meanings to something that you say frequently from the du'as in salah and outside of salah because now you have a deeper appreciation of what you're actually saying. You can have a general understanding, but when you have a better, a deeper understanding, it draws out more hudur, more, more presence when you say it. Subuhun means the transcendent. And Quddus... Uh, how did I even translate that here? I don't remember. Did I did I even translate it? The holy, right? I didn't mention that. The holy. So, what do we call the Quran? Uh, we, you know, if you translate, you know, muqaddas, right? Uh, can you say the holy Quran? You know, believe it or not, there was a guy many years ago who was arguing online that you you can't say holy Quran. Because only Allah is holy. The Quran is the Allah. So of course the Quran is holy. His muqaddas is beyond imperfections and deficiencies. So you can say the holy Quran. And some people, they object. And I, I, I actually said it today on Jumu'ah. Some people object to this too. If you say the holy prophet. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That wasn't always the case. It used to be the old English Islamic literature that was translated and published in the 70s and 80s. Most of it was coming out of Pakistan. So like the translation of Sahih Muslim, right? I believe it was uh, Shaykh Abdul Alim al-Siddiqi. It always says the Holy Prophet. That was fine until some people started to object because in their mind you can't say that. But Holy means one who is removed from imperfections. Is not the Prophet wasallam imperfections are removed from him? Uh, Imam Busayri mentions this in Hindu Burda. Munazzahun an sharikin fi mahasinihi. He is transcendent from having anyone like him among creation in his beauties. That's what it means. It means the one who among created beings is removed from deficiencies and faults. That's a, co- a completely correct meaning. 
So you can say Holy Quran, you can say Holy Prophet, you can use the word holy for other than Allah with that, that meaning. Obviously not in the meaning of absolute, in the sense of intrinsic, with that, right? It's bil'ata. It's by Allah giving them that quality of removing those things and keeping those things from them. It's not intrinsic because they are also in need, right? So you can say, holy prophet, no problem, right? Uh, wallahu a'lam. So any other questions or comments? Uh, when they're together, mulk is for the physical and malakut is for the unseen. And there's, there's no consensus on this, by the way. It's just, this is the general view of the majority of the ulama when they explain the difference between the two, when they're paired. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's really a question of translation. Is there a difference between the the nafs and the ruh? Or how do we even translate nafs? Do we translate nafs as soul? And do we translate ruh as spirit? That's a possible translation. Uh, uh, nafs could also refer to the 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 animate the animated aspect the what makes the person alive in the physical sense like the in that sense you have the animals have nafus too because they have anima anima means you know animated or they have life hayat so that that's a really long discussion that's been uh, debated across a millennia among scholars is the nafs and the ruh the same thing or two distinct entities. The majority position is that the ruh and the nafs is the same thing. And they say that what you call nafs is the ruh and what you call the ruh is the nafs is just from different vantage points. So you would call it nafs, you know, the human essence. You would call it nafs if it hasn't yet been purified. But if it's been purified, you would call it the ruh. This is one perspective. They say it's the same thing, just a different vantage point. There are others, however, who say that no, the nafs is distinct from the ruh, and the difference is that the nafs refers to the physical aspect of the human being, the, anima the animated aspect of, of hayat, of life, the physical form with all of its desires, which could be used for good or for bad. And the ruh refers to the, really the essence of what makes the human human, which is that essence of the human that was when Allah created that essence, that ruh, in the realm of alastu birabbikum, in the spiritual realm, which is the essence of the human being. So it's debated, but the majority is that Nafs and ruh is the same thing. This is a translation. So you could say, you could, re, you could translate this a little differently and say, realizing this name by purifying the self. Purifying the self, and which in, that encompasses the outward and the inward, everything, until the ruh dominates over the physical body. And the physical body could be the nafs in that case. So different ways of looking at it. Uh, Imam Ghazali has a whole book in the Ihya exploring this issue, Kitab Aja'ib al-Qalb, the book on the marvels of the heart, where he explores what are the different shades of meaning for Qalb and Lub and Fu'ad and Nafs and Ruh, all of which are words that point to the essence of the human being. How are they different from each other? Why does Allah use this word and that word? in different contexts. What do they mean? He explores that in great detail in one of the books in his Ihya. It's been translated into English with the title, The Marvels of the Heart. And you can find it, inshallah, if you want to read more on that. 
he explores it in great detail. Right, well, you have an nafs al amara bisu, an nafs al lawama, an nafs al mutma'inna, an nafs al radia, al mardia. Some of them mention three levels. So, amara bisu, the soul that commands the person to evil, which is a bit of irony there because the commander and the commanded is the same thing. But then you have an nafs al lawama, which is the reproachful soul. You know, the soul of the person who does good and bad, and they don't feel good about the bad they do. They blame themselves after they do it, and that describes you know, most most of most Muslims. That's where we are, if we're honest. And then you have the higher degree, an nafs al mutma'inna, the contented soul. Some mention three, some mention five, some mention seven. And there, there's no contradiction in that. They're just different ways of looking at it, different degrees of the soul. Uh, Imam al-Shabrawi has a very uh, beautiful book on this topic called The Degrees of the Soul. Uh, it was translated many years ago by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, The Degrees of the Soul by Imam Shabrawi, where he explores all of those levels of soul development. Uh, you could think of them, to use a, a more modern term, as soul vibrations, you know, levels of development. Yeah. Any other questions? Right. That's what we say when we, you mention the names of many uh, different uh, pious individuals in history. You'll say, you know, Sheikh Fulan Qaddas Allahu. Sirrahu or Quddisa Sirruhu, which means may Allah sanctify his soul. So that is uh, another meaning used in dua. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Jazakumullah wa anakhirah.